0: You know, some of the things that drive me insane are the processes have been very much the same for 50 years.
1: I'd like to be the first to welcome you to Design Nerds Anonymous, the podcast that sparks curiosity at the intersection of business and design. I'm your host, Amanda Schneider, founder and president at ThinkLab, the research division of Sandow, and sister company to design brands you know and love, like Interior Design, Metropolis, Material Bank, and more.
2: And I'd like to be the second person to welcome you to Design Nerds Anonymous. My name is Hannah Vitti, and I've been Amanda's right hand throughout the season. I'm the audio journalist engineer producing Design Nerds Anonymous with ThinkLab you'll hear my voice throughout the season.
1: In this podcast, we've invited trailblazers from within the design industry and beyond to engage in conversations and explore the topics that will drive our future. At ThinkLab, our passion is sharing inspiration for your business, fuel for your design process, and connections with people and ideas for positive disruption. So thanks for listening, we're glad you're here. One of my favorite phrases is that the biggest future change will come from process innovation, not product innovation. Now realize the irony there, because if you know me, you know I'm a product designer by background. But if you think about this industry, there are so many product awards, and that has to deal with product in terms of furniture or wall covering or any kind of product you put into a space, but also space design. But who in our industry is really celebrating process innovation? If we look at disruption that's happened in other industries, it didn't come from building a better hotel, think of Airbnb. It didn't come from driving a better car, think about taxi and Uber, the list goes on. It really came from inventing new experiences. It came from looking at processes and reducing friction. And I have no doubt disruption in our industry will be the same.
2: In today's economic climate, Everyone is trying to do more with less. But if you're left feeling like there's not enough time in the day, you're not alone. The good news is that the world seems more open to change for the better now than ever before. However, that often starts with identifying the challenges that surround you.
1: So this is a story, we call it the Christmas ham, but you can call it your Hanukkah roast, whatever meat, whatever religion you wanna choose. Uh, It's a story of a mother and daughter who were making Christmas dinner and they took the ham out of the package and the mom cut off both ends of the ham. And the daughter says, well, why'd you cut off the ends of the ham? And the mom had never really thought of that before. So she called up grandma and she said, hey grandma, why do we cut off the ends of the ham? And grandma said, well, because my pan was too small. And um, you can go out and groan. That's everyone groans at this point. (laughs) A great example of how there are things in life that we don't even realize that we're doing. No one wants to keep perpetuating things that don't make sense. But a lot of times it's the fact that they don't realize that.
2: In manufacturing, many companies have formal processes to look at process improvement. But we're designers. We're creative. Let's hear from our first guest. Elizabeth Von Lee, design and brand strategy principal at HDR in New York, an all-around big thinker about the challenges she's identifying in this rapid period of change.
3: Process innovation, what pops in my head first as we're all doing this remotely, there are a lot of elements of the design industry that these innovations have been talked about for a really long time, the way that we, what the phases look like for a project, the way that we design together on a team, how you collaborate. All of the technologies that we're all using every day right now have been around for quite a while. As we've
2: realized in recent months, the future is a lot less scary once we understand it's the path we're already on. And 2020, in many ways, has only accelerated that path.
3: And it wasn't until the current situation that suddenly it wasn't a nice to have. It was a requirement to do things in an incredibly different way. Um, and it'll be interesting to see where that goes once there's a vaccine and we're not doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. But it was actually one of the silver linings to me personally that the processes for our projects, there there's no room for... The save as approach, saying that the way that we've done this before, the reliance on in person everything, um, none of that is allowable right now. So finally, the way that we're designing out most of our projects has been completely upended. I doubt there are too many contracts out there that in March there weren't lawyers looking at figuring out how the like act of God thing did or didn't apply to the scope and the approach, because we all immediately realized, oh my god, th- th- we're not going to be able to do our jobs the way that we thought we were going to a month ago. And so suddenly, the, the game plan uh, that we had in February looked completely different from the game plan that we put together in March and April and May. <laughs>
2: Because we're exploring the industry and the design ecosystem from all sides, we love to talk to people who have held multiple roles and multiple perspectives. This is AJ Perone, EVP, Design Futurist at Sandow, talking about clear opportunities for process innovation.
0: Like you look at your standard RFP process in commercial design, that has really not changed. And so I've been the client looking at the RFP. I've been at the design firm evaluating that RFP or creating RFPs for the client. I've been on the manufacturer responding to the RFP, crossing our fingers, hoping we win. And I think the problem that lies in there is that many times the process, people are really diligent and so held onto the process that it's not benefiting what the client is really trying to achieve. It's coming down and getting decided on a factor that really, at the end, doesn't really matter. You know, a lot of it's priced, but then they get into the project and then there's, because the way that the RFP was written or the process that they were doing, like a reverse auction, which is, in my mind, horrific, the client doesn't end up being satisfied and their needs don't end up being met. And to me, that's wasteful, right? So then guess what? We're gonna to have to do this all again in a couple of years because it wasn't done correctly for the client. And there's so many other industries have been able to really figure things out in a different way and say, look at this process and go, let's do this differently. And you know, I've seen some movement where design firms have very much advocated for the client to choose a partner and actually do an interview process and do maybe some sort of pricing exercise, but it's really about finding that right team and someone that holds the values that you're holding on to. And those projects tend to go smoother, but it's still a very antiquated process. I do feel that you know an integrated design approach, a lot of what Lead and WELL talk about, where you've got all the stakeholders at the table in the very, very beginning, does help. um, but it's that's not how our process has been for the last fifty years. And so there's a lot of friction to that as well. So um, to me, the one thing that's been really difficult in our industry is really understanding the needs of the client, because that's the thing that always gets value engineered out or people don't have time to do. A lot of times, designers are, You know, they are the trendsetters. They are the ones that are really fighting, going, we need to do this better. And you are going to get ridiculed. You are going to get opposed. Your clients are going to go tell me how this is going to help me, you know, how this is going to help me sell more or make my company better. And you have to be able to paint the vision. It's the right thing to do. And not just for their community, it's the right thing for the planet or the right thing for, um, you know their grandchildren that have never been born right and so that's a harder sell that's a harder thing to do and it's also the harder path the path of least resistance is just to do whatever the client wants to do that's that's the easier path
2: but what else can we do to innovate the process let's go back to elizabeth to explore the design perspective on what's changing right now and maybe even for a dose of perspective on navigating current process challenges with clients.
3: There were definitely, you know, pain points working with certain clients to get them to be more tech savvy, but I think we learned from that and the the, the yeah, the process innovation topic is potentially pretty deep because I think we're all experiencing it with countless it's not wouldn't it be nice examples? Because I think before all of this, we had plenty of those like, well, our ideal project could be like this and the future could look like that. Now it's, I could rattle off 16 different projects that had to be completely reframed how their process was going to be done because I can't hop on Delta Flight whatever (laughs) every other day and be in lots of other locations. it hurt, but um, it is a pretty major theme right now.
1: I love that. And can you give any more tangible examples about you know recent ways your projects has have changed for the better as as a result of this kind of forced interaction?
3: Well, I will give one that was like the first and probably the most painful. <laughs> um, I'm working with a client on a on a hospital that has. digging right into a very specific scope deliverable here we were working on this massive artwork program within our design right and the people that are willing to write the checks with zeros at the end for artwork don't tend to be in their 20s and 30s Um, they tend to be a little bit older part of certain foundations and things and not necessarily the most tech savvy and the approach for showing them artwork before all of this was fly to that city, already have massive decks of materials ready to go, to talk them through all the questions and elements in person. Um, and then on a dime, we had to be sharing that through screen sharing, but also letting them give feedback, at not live, and one of the questions I got was not like, oh, how do I, how do I work with this interface? I had a client ask me, what's a PDF? <laughs> so um, jumping the hurdle of not only is it a different process, but like how do you help guide people through that process when they don't have some of the very base tech savviness, the, the basic sort of tool set.
2: So it's not just the technology, but it's also managing through the experience of it all.
3: That we all do and we take for granted, that was one of the really big, the big hurdles. But after we figured out what, where they were confused and where they weren't, after we played IT support just as much as designer, now we're doing weekly screen shares with, that, with those people just the same as everybody else. And I think they probably have learned some learned some basic skills about the Adobe products um, coming out of this that they probably wouldn't have otherwise. They were used to having things printed out for them that they would handwrite feedback on. And that's that's not going to work right now. And to be honest with you, it was never working very well. We were just all sort of putting up with it.
2: I want to stop right there on that
3: just all sort
2: of putting up with it. And go back to what AJ said a few minutes ago.
0: That's a harder thing to do. And it's also the harder path. The path of least resistance is just to do whatever the client wants to do. That's, That's the easier path.
2: So if you're a designer listening to this, or really anyone in any other role that recognizes inefficiencies, here's a great design world example of Cutting off the ends of the ham without stopping to question how it's not working.
3: And so, coming out of this, I think we've got these processes in place that allow us to guide even more tech stunted partners through a project that cuts massive time and expense out. It doesn't really add much to the design to hop a plane every two weeks just to be able to like show some pictures that you could be showing just like this. That's there's a lot of waste in that and if you extrapolate that that's just one artwork program inside of one project. You extrapolate that up to the scale of a business. There is potentially a lot of a lot more time that that we get back in the calendar and I've been part of enough conversations about oh how does how does integration of BIM software, for example, so that everyone's real-time looking at changes make things go faster and faster. I don't think that they should necessarily go faster. I think we actually, through these efficiencies, should be gaining time back for ourselves to be able to do more uh, rigorous and diligent design. I think that's the outcome, to be honest with you, that, we, that we're striving for. So we've set up the problem. But we wanted to find
2: people that have started to solve some of our industry's most challenging obstacles, hopefully to find fuel for more process innovation. We'll get into those solutions right after this break.
1: Hey there. We really wanted to create a different kind of ad with this podcast. I've played a personal role in selecting the sponsors, because they represent big thinking happening in our industry. For this first season, our sponsors were selected from early adopters of our Think Lab Insider program, a new service designed to help standout brand partners keep their finger on the pulse of industry change. In a time when, frankly, change is happening faster than ever, you can visit thinklab.design/insider for more information. But let's get to our sponsor. This episode's sponsor is Carnegie Fabrics, a brand probably best known for the creation of Zorel, a unique fabric combining performance, beauty, and sustainability all in one. But there's more big thinking happening at Carnegie that you may or may not be aware of. So let's look at it in the context of process innovation, since that's what we're talking about. About five years ago, they started noticing a major shift in the way that clients were requesting samples. What used to be a very deliberate and edited list of products that were requested to see and don't dare add anything that wasn't suggested on that list, morphed into very open and last-minute sweeps of, i got a presentation tomorrow. Hey, here are three concepts. Send us everything you've got that might work. And we think this shift was probably due to a few things. Certainly the accelerated pace of projects, fewer billable hours, maybe the resource library becoming a less reliable place for current products. And if you fast forward to today, when so many designers are working from home without access to a physical library, you'll see why the solution becomes even more relevant. So we wanna recognize how Carnegie took those pain points and saw an opportunity to help improve the process. The outcome was Design Ally, a designer to designer experience, leveraging technology where information is provided and a designer can detail out various aesthetics and criteria and even upload or attach links to project board as a reference. From there, a designer from Carnegie Creative Studio creates a solution-driven palette which is received the next day. What once took a designer hours in the library can now be achieved in 5 to 10 minutes. Carnegie wants to help you look like a rock star. And in today's time-as-a-currency environment, help save time, but without sacrificing great design. So, to learn more about Design Ally, visit carnegiefabrics.com backslash design slash ally. Now
2: let's get back to our process innovators. Our goal is to understand how they identified pain points, tested changes, and quite simply, got results. Perhaps one of the biggest innovators in our industry when it comes to process innovation is right within our Sandow's sister company, Material Bank. Let's hear from Kelly Wertz, Happiness Director at Material Bank, about the process-minded thinking that led to its conception.
4: And if I can like use the word disruption in a different way, too, we at Metrobank disrupted an industry because we said everybody is losing money and time. We've
2: got to find a better way to do this to survive as an industry and to still be able to create. Process innovation starts with discovering pain points. At ThinkLab, we are obsessed with finding problems because to us, that means opportunity an opportunity is what will grow your business. Let's hear about Material Bank's process of pain discovery.
4: And just so we're all on the same page, let's talk about how this access was traditionally done. We're talking about thousands of manufacturers that create product for this industry. And amongst those thousands of manufacturers, you have thousands upon thousands of local reps who then call on firms and build those one-to-one relationships. If you're lucky enough from a manufacturer standpoint, you're given a small piece of real estate within that firm to keep your binders or your goods or your samples. And then that's where that physical library environment comes into play. So in our old way of looking at a firm or a real estate environment is that there was a physical library and people from that office could go visit. But there's a lot of hurdles there. Is it current? Somebody's gotta have the time to have come in and you know make sure everything is current and that we've got things that we're referencing that are are clear. Do we know that it's up to date? Did your neighbor just take the cool thing that you thought you wanted for your project? Like nobody knows, right? It's all this physical overlap. But we made it work. We as an industry, we just scramble, we do what we gotta do. What Metrobank has done is created this digital platform that allows for you to see these manufacturers all in one place side by side, and it's not in their own entities. We're talking about those individual materials in comparison to each other so that as a specifier or a designer, I can come and say, I want blue, I want recycled content.
2: And in this day and age, when time is more valuable than ever, saving time is king. Now, as you listen to this, while we'd love to think you'd be inspired by a material bank, what we really want you to do is think about how you can apply this process of exploration, pain point discovery, and results for your business.
4: And there's a quick filtering system. So we did a traditional test. We said, here's three manufacturers. This is your search criteria. Go find what we're looking for. And in a traditional method, it took over two hours just to do the search part of it. Even more so to do all the contact for individual reps. It took a week for everything to trickle in. And as it trickles in, think about all the independent packaging and peanuts and fossil fuel trips and all of these things. Plus all the organization time from that individual to be like, okay, I got that one check. Where's the next one? Blah, 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 blah. It's all of this administrative work just to get to the creative process. Material Bank allows you to do all of that. We did that same search, which is kind of crazy in three minutes. Cause you're just like click, click, click. These are what I want to see.
2: But process innovation is iterative, and there's lots of opportunity to continue innovating. Keep listening for more about how Material Bank did just that.
4: We're creating an efficiency and a sustainability around time and resources, but also that physicality that we talked about. So we also, um, Adam and our internal industrial designer did custom packaging. So all of our packaging is reusable or recyclable. Um, our packaging includes what you were talking about, the free return capacity, which is another enormous waste in our industry. Manufacturers are more than happy to get samples into a firm and into a specifier's hand, but using energy and resources to take it back is less likely. If there are resources like that, there are some really great manufacturers out there who have built in return shipping and things like that. But then again, that's another administrative time task where you have to sort everything by individual manufacturer, find that packaging, get it back, right? And so material bank is the answer to all of that. You can order what you need. It comes in one box, ship back what you don't need. If it's in great shape, we'll reshelve it. Um, We do have a quality control and lots of Lysol right now, obviously. Um, And it comes back on the shelf. So all of those things are kind of built into the way that the the business model is built. This is this is how it's built in the expectation
2: here. Material Bank is one of many innovators in our industry, but let's look at another one. We've also been very inspired by Design Public Group. They're a company whose core mission was also built around recognizing a problem and innovating the process. For them, it was around ancillary furniture. We talked with co-founder Matthew Lieb, not only about his unique process, but about disrupting the traditional process overall and his advice for others.
5: The mission of our company is to streamline the process of ancillary, thus making it more efficient for three different stakeholders. One is contract dealers, two is the a and D community, and three is manufacturers.
2: But we should add here that indirectly, You'll also learn how this benefits the profitability of A&D firms.
5: We do this in a way that's free for all three of those different stakeholders. And it's really through um, what Amanda mentioned, which is changing the process to make it more efficient for each of those people, each of those groups rather. So I'm one of the founders of the company. I have a co-founder, Todd.
2: One of my favorite things about Matthew is that he doesn't come from the design industry. Now, many of you listening have been part of the specification process. Imagine trying to explain it to someone outside of the industry. Here's Matthew's take.
5: I'm um, frankly a bit amazed at how the process currently worked. There's a whole bunch of different dimensions to it, but fundamentally, if I gave a contract dealer a specification that had about 18, well, actually specifically 18 brands on it. I use that because we tested this number, they would take that spec. They would first do some research on who to call, right? Who I call this rep for that, this brand I've never heard of that one. I know the brand, but I don't know who to call. There'd be some upfront work and then they would package up 18 emails and send it to 18 different reps requesting a quote. They would almost inevitably have to go hound those people for the quote because they never got it back to the dealer as quickly as the dealer needed. They would get that information back. They would then need to uh, check the work, right? Because there's a counter stool on the spec, but did you price out a bar stool, et cetera, kind of check the homework sort of thing. At some point in the process, there would be a change, right? Hey, I know I asked you to quote 12 chairs, but now I need 13. I know I asked for the sofa in blue, but now I need it in red. Can you please update the quote and back and forth and back and forth. Oftentimes, particularly with ancillary furniture, which is where we focus, there would be uh, they would not provide the freight number. So now it's, you know, hey, Hannah, I know you provided me the product price, but I need the freight number to be done here. Can I get it? Can I get it? Can I get it? Can I get it? So, they'd have to reach out and get that. At some point, they would then take these 18 different quotes, they would print them all out, and they would recreate them all in Excel. So, they would type everything out the dimensions, the price, they go find the images online, they would create the grid, so to speak. They'd go through that process. And then eventually, they're ready to cut the purchase orders. And so, they would then have to print those 18 things out and recreate them again in their internal system, whether it's Headbird, Team Design, Chameleon, CapCore, et cetera, et cetera. And that process, just from taking the spec to getting the quotes out, would take them over a week, typically. And to us, that didn't really make a lot of sense because a lot of it was just sort of back and forth and paper pushing and sort of um, just an inefficient approach to things.
2: So let's hear how Matthew redesigned the process through his platform.
5: We went out to build a model that would allow them to effectively build a quote in real time themselves, 24 seven, have all of the information or the majority of the information at their fingertips very quickly. They could build a quote, they could download it to Excel with a single click. They could upload it directly into their accounting system and so on and so forth. All with some, some people sitting behind it to act as kind of a concierge element to it. And we were able to take that process again, that we measured that took them about a week down to 25 minutes.
2: Let's make sure you heard that right. Yes, from a week down to 25 minutes.
5: And now we have a way to do it even faster than that. So that was kind of the, that's the crux of what we're doing. Again, layer on top of that, they're now submitting one purchase order on payment terms with a single point of contact. And so it's really, there are other elements to what we're trying to bring to the story for contract dealers. But if you had to boil it down to one thing, it would be taking a multi-multi-day process and shrinking it down to a very short period of time, which has a whole bunch of, no pun intended, ancillary benefits, right? It allows, it makes it easier for the dealer to uh, follow through on the design intent of the A&D community, right?
2: I want to get back to tying this to business results. As I mentioned, A&D firm time efficiency and profitability. Listen on.
5: We have a very famous example. We talk about it all the time where the designer has built out the spec by finding images online and talking to reps and so on and so forth. And then they kind of just throw in these prices and then they go and present it to the client who loves it. They then go and take it to the dealer community in this particular example. They were literally 235% over budget before they would even really gotten out of the starting blocks, right? So, which means the dealers are now running around with their head cut off. The entire project is going to be re-engineered. The client's not going to get what they originally showed. And the p- profitability of the design firm is, is spiraling down because there's going to be more and more hours allocated. So those two systems talk to each other as well. So the A&D firm can build a spec and pass it to the dealer who can just click on it and execute against the spec. And so you, you're, the topic that you guys are talking about is exactly kind of what we think about, which is how do you improve this process of dealing with ancillary.
2: Interestingly enough, Matt didn't come from the design world. But to him, this was actually a benefit.
5: Yeah, I think I think we benefited from not understanding kind of the entrenched in some respects way of doing things. So we didn't we didn't have any preconceived notions of how people were supposed to do it or how they actually did do it. We just went in and were We were fortunate in that some clients showed us, well, this is what we do, and then we just asked a lot of questions, well, well, why do you do it that way? And when you ask that question and there's not a lot of compelling answers, uh, it probably tells you that maybe that's not the best way to do it. Sometimes it is, but maybe it's not. So then we started to think about you know other kind of legs of the stool to make it a more compelling solution and that that's where we got into more of the logistics side and being able to track things more accurately and proactively being able to ship things to people faster being able to build out a really big catalog very very quickly sort of on demand you know the the common thread through all of this was um having the customer tell us what they wanted plain and simple right so Oh, it takes too long. to get. Oh, you don't know where anything is? Well, we've got to come up with something for that. Oh, you're being asked to get crazy stuff from all over the world and you don't know how to go source it? Well, we better come up with a model for that. So it was really just kind of a, you know, no real rocket science around that. Just a very focus on the customer. What do you need us to do for you that would make us very valuable to what you're doing?
2: What's the biggest challenge? I think
5: the the biggest challenge that we face ourselves and i think other people will face us we're trying to do things in an innovative way and maybe some other people on your podcast will echo something like this is it it requires a behavioral change right and so i can intellectually lay out for you what we're doing and i can't guarantee it but i'm pretty sure i could convince you that it's a better way but that's not the same as getting you to actually do it in this what we perceive as a perceived way because you've been doing it a different way for so long and so the hardest part about innovating is kind of i think it's sort of the human side of it right and it's interesting because we work in the design industry right and design is all about you know sort of human-centered design and that whole thing is how do you create it in such a way that Changing the behavior is not painful or hard to do. It sort of comes naturally. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges we have is just, I've been doing something one way for a really long time. And yeah, I can see this is better, but boy, is it hard to to pivot onto that. that. And that's been a real challenge sometimes.
1: So we've got just a few minutes left, but I want you to maybe think about any advice you have for entrepreneurs. If you could talk to yourself, uh, five years ago, seven years ago, before you really launched into this, especially given the current economic climate, what yeah. would you have for those kind of seeking process innovation?
5: Um, find a problem that creates a lot of pain for someone and see if you can fix it. It's always easier to, it's easier to sell aspirin. What's the saying? It's, something like, it's easier to sell aspirin than it is to sell something that's nice to have, but not really needed. If you can make someone's headache go away, um, that's always something valuable. Um, and so that would be the biggest thing. You can do a lot of things with like technology and whatnot that sort of is cool for the sake of technology, but, oh wow, isn't that interesting that you can do that, this, that, and the other thing, but if it doesn't really solve someone's problem, it's just sort of window dressing. So that would be, that would be my main thing, is find, find a prof, something that causes someone a lot of pain and see if you can make it less painful or make the pain completely go away.
1: so as we bring this episode to a close I want to leave you with this thought where are the Christmas hams in your world what opportunities do you see that waste time, cause friction or just generally don't make sense and how have recent economic events helped bring those to light we hope you'll join us at ThinkLab in identifying, challenging and innovating around those assumptions I like to say my job is not to give you all the answers but to make you think A special thanks to our interviewees in this episode, Elizabeth Von Lay, Kelly Wertz, A.J. Perrone, and Matthew Lieb. And to Blue Dot Sessions for the music. Until next time, thanks for listening.